Blog Talk Radio. Black Politics Today. An eye for what's at stake in global politics and your source for the social, economic, and political impact of public policy on the African American community. Your host, Kelly Michael Williams, is a political strategy veteran with an undefeated campaign record and the political experience that spans nearly three decades from Mayor Willie Brown in California to President Barack Obama in our nation's capital. So get ready for a fresh and honest approach on the politics that affect you and your family the most. Now, your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Well, everybody, it's deep time in America. But now can the Democrats make it prime time? Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Kelly Michael Williams, and I want to thank you for joining us tonight. As I expect, we'll have a very good show this evening, and uh, things are going to be like uh, they always are, just, you know, fast moving, and, you know, we're going to talk about it, we're going to say it, if you don't like it, oh well. But you're certainly welcome to call in and join us if you like to to uh, share your comments or share your views. You can give us a call at 516-590-0143. That's 516-590-0143. Zero one four three, and we'll welcome your viewpoints. As I do with every show, before I really get started and get into uh, my guests, my commentary, and and things that I have to say to get off my chest, I always pause and and thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for just allowing me this platform, allowing me to host this show, uh, giving me this vision to share and talk about uh, what's at stake for African Americans across this country, uh, because I think that's one of the areas that we don't talk about. We don't highlight and nor do we impress upon those in our community that there's always something at stake, especially when we're talking about public policy, social, economically or politically. And with this historic midterm election uh, seemingly to have woke up, if you will, a lot of black folks uh, to the reality of what's at stake for them. The question is, has it? That would be the question that we'll try to tackle and, and deal with over the next hour with my guests and discuss in various uh, concepts and aspects of uh, this midterm election. In some areas, African-Americans still seem uh, to have come up short from their actual voting potential and their availability to actually get out there and speak and have a voice. And that in itself, uh, in some of those cases, uh, caused potential Democratic upsets to come up short. Now, African-Americans can't take the blame for all of that. Of course, uh, many white Americans feel, you know, feeling frustrated or left behind or feeling like they didn't belong. Uh, they also sat at home in major contests. And uh, now we're looking at various races that have recounts, uh, too close to call. And uh, this is not the typical election season that we have where we have at least 13 races uh, for Congress and uh, two governorships still waiting to be resolved. Um, uh, And, you know, a week later, almost a week later after the election, but that is the case. And then we come to Texas, you know, it's always Florida, 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 but some great things happen in Texas because the truth of the matter is, is that you had black girls magic, rocking the show in Texas and came alive with 17 out of 19 black women running for judgeships in Harris County, Texas, a county with deep history of negative treatment towards African-Americans. And you had 17 black women now taking control of that county and its civil, criminal and juvenile court system mandating that a change is going to come. And joining me tonight to discuss this and the topics vital to the curating of a black agenda for, uh, for 2019 and beyond is Justice-elect Angela Graves Harrington. She's a managing partner and a civil, criminal, and family law attorney. She's licensed in the state of Texas and also uh, serving in the southern and western districts of Texas. Uh, she's also uh, licensed to serve on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. She's a certified ad, ad, ad litinum and is appointed by the state of Texas to represent indigent clients. Also joining me is uh, Ralph 
excuse me, Reverend Ralph uh, J. Chittum Sr. And I'm going to get that name wrong a couple of times here, Ralph. So I'm going to call you Ralph and you can say your last name for me. But Ralph is the principal of Black Elephant Consulting. He's uh, a company that focuses on issues of religious liberty on the national and international stage. Uh, his overarching mission is to positively impact culture locally, nationally, and internationally, bringing an empowering and liberating message of conservatism to urban America. And finally, but certainly not least, is my friend and uh, colleague, Dr. Johnny Bernard Hill. He's Associate Professor of Philosophy and Religion at Claflin University, a dynamic voice for justice, reconciliation, and human rights in America, and the author of the first Black president, Barack Obama, Race, Politics, and the American Dream, and also a BPT contributor. Let me welcome all of you to the show and uh, get you on here. Welcome all to the show. Race, Politics, and the American Dream, and also a Welcome to the show, guys. Yeah, turn down your radio. Uh, free up some of that background noise for me. How's everyone doing? Doing well, thank Great. you. Okay, did we lose someone? Uh, who did we lose? Uh, we lost the judge. Okay, so hopefully she'll, she'll get back in real quick here. Um, so let me start with you, Ralph, uh, since it's your first time, first time on the show. Um, I, you're also former candidate for um, – um, at large, D.C. Center Council at large, uh, great race, great opportunity f- uh, for me to meet you and, and uh, have you run. How are things going? Uh, talk to me about the campaign. What are some of the, the, the positive negatives that you had and, and what is it that you are looking for? Well, the race itself was, for me, was fantastic. Um, we didn't win, but there were so many positive takeaways from the campaign that we could talk about that for the full hour. Um, For me, (laughs) one of the biggest takeaways was um, I ran as a Republican in deep blue Washington, D.C. There are only 30,000 registered Republicans in Washington, D.C., but yet and still with that, the negative responses that I got running as a Republican were so minuscule that I would say – it was no more than 2% negative responses to me running as a Republican. Mm-hmm. And so that, for me, that proved that if you run as a candidate with ideas to help the people, to solve the problems, and just don't resort to sound bites and ignorance, people will listen. And for me, that was a huge positive takeaway. Great, great. Mm-hmm. And so what are some of the issues that you were championing and looking forward to helping uh, the, the District of Columbia resolve and, and uh, move forward on? Well, one of the main issues I kept hammering on was the fact that in Washington, D.C., in 2018, we are still running an apartheid-era education system where a child's zip code determines the quality of his or her education. Now, that should not even be possible in 2018, let alone in a city that is being governed by black people. Mm-hmm. That's outrageous. And also another issue that I, was, I brought up consistently was in Washington, D.C., the maternal child death rate for women, for pregnant women and their babies who lives east of the Anacostia River, rivals some developing countries due to a lack of access to adequate and convenient health care. Again, in 2018, in a city run by black people, how has this been allowed to occur for the past 20 years? So is it a mm-hmm. is it an issue of the city or is it an issue of the federal government? Given that we are in the District of Columbia and the federal government is the uh, sort of the overseer of our uh, structure, if you will, and our our budgets and things of that nature, is it a city issue or is it a federal issue? No, this is a city issue. Um, the District of Columbia has a fourteen point five billion. That's billion with a B annual budget. 
Mm-hmm. This is not a federal issue. This is an issue of what I consider willful and benign neglect on the part of the ruling elite in Washington, D.C., who care more about building buildings than they do about building people. Interesting. So you feel it's a deliberate attack on the humanity of what we uh, are supposed to live and stand for. It, it has to be deliberate for it to have been in existence for more than 20 years. You know, five, five years, okay, it's an aberration. I'll give you a pass. But when you talk about having a system in operation for over a generation, mm-hmm. this franchises a certain geographic region, that clearly has to be by design. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, Johnny, now, uh, go ahead. Go ahead, Ralph. It's crazy that I, a black Republican, am the one saying all of this, and it's supposed to be the Democrats who care about the poor black people. But clearly in this situation, it, it sort of suspends reality because the reverse is actually what's happening. So what was the reaction on the campaign trail to uh to that issue that uh you know the 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 idea that uh those in control or those in power have not been addressing this issue? Um the, the rank and file who who heard my message understood and it resonated with them because they're living with this reality every day. Mm-hmm. And I had, you know, a few Democrats Say to me, you know, Ralph, you're the only dude out here that's talking about the real stuff. These other folks right. running are just talking fluff. But, you know, there's a whole other reality about the press um, being in, in cahoots with the power structure in D.C. And honestly, oh, wow. giving Republican voices any, any airtime or press time whatsoever. So, you know, but when I was able to get my message to the people, they understood it and it resonated with them. So are you thinking that next time around that you'll uh, go as an independent rather than as a registered Republican? No, because um, for me to change party as an independent, everyone would look at me sideways and say, Ralph, we know you're Republican. Stop faking. (laughs) (laughs) Well. I mean, they do that now because, you know, so many of the Democrats change to independent so they can fill independent seats. I mean, they wouldn't look at you any differently. Well, my, my integrity doesn't allow me to become what I term a Decepticon because that's what, all the, that's what all the independents are right now in the district government. They're all Decepticons. They're Democrats wearing independent clothing. And if I'm going to refer to them as Decepticons, then I can't turn around and do the same thing. And do the same thing. <laughs> True. Right, I have Johnny, to my own integrity. Well, I appreciate that, Ralph. And, and, and meeting you, uh, I, I have to tell you that uh, I was drawn to you. I was drawn to your uh, philosophy and your candor, uh, but also your, uh, your results, your, you know, your solutions to the issues and to the problems. So uh, I certainly respect that for you and, and of you and uh, look forward to um, – you know, what you have coming in the future and what you're going to be doing. Johnny, let me go to you and, and talk to you about this. Um, just uh, in some of the things that he's saying, there's always that um, uh, label or stigma that we get that in major cities and cities where uh, mayors or, or city officials are African-American that it doesn't seem to resonate that uh, African Americans necessarily live better because of it. What what's what, what's the what's the issue with that, or, or what what happens? Well, I, I mean, I, I I agree with Ralph that there are enough issues that um, deserve um, serious attention, from the school system to the problem of homelessness and the marginalization of uh, poor and working. Uh, African-American communities in Washington, D.C. But I think, uh, Ralph, what I would say is that your approach is very ahistorical. Um, I think it's very impossible to know what's going on in D.C. without looking at the deep, profound history of racism as it relates to African-American communities in the district uh, and the history of uh, marginalization 
um, by uh, the powerful elite uh, even today. Um, as I understand that, I, I don't believe that uh, Washington, D.C., the district still has um, co- congressional representation uh, as of um, the present moment. And so a lot of the federal policies that actually have an impact on the school system and the districting sort of uh, housing and uh, commercial activities in the district are um, are uh, decided um, by voices in 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 Washington D.C. in terms of con- in, in terms of Congress and and the federal government, but don't have necessarily the representation from the citizens of Washington D.C. That's one 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 observation. The other one is is that um, it seems to me that the district has changed dramatically. Um, the 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 powerful force of gentrification has swept through the city of Washington D.C. over the last twenty or thirty years. Uh, like we've never seen before. So many of the poor and working-class African-American communities in Washington, D.C. have been ghettoized and concentrated in small geographic spaces um, and continue to be subjugated that contributes to high crime rates uh, and the uh, persistence of disparities in the educational system. So I agree it's not just about money, but it's also about policies. And a lot of the, a lot of the policies that are championed by, the, um, by the, uh, the Republican agenda, both in local communities and nationwide, uh, is a very um, uh, destructive policy for poor and working-class African Americans that assumes a laissez-faire um, understanding of government. They want the government out of uh, private interests as much as possible, and to allow uh, private corporations to just come in and do whatever they like to do, even in terms of the privatization of the school system in Washington, D.C. So I think that we have to be very careful and very, very critical of any agenda that uh, allows private interests to sort of come in or corporations to come in and just do whatever they like. And so my concern is that we don't have enough representation from the people in the district uh, to weigh in on a lot of the federal policies that impact those local communities. And we're seeing it all over the country as well, from rural communities across North Carolina to Georgia uh, and the persistence of voter suppression uh, in many local communities that has the same implications and consequences as we're seeing in D.C. What we see in D.C. is, is what happens when a community does not have adequate representation uh, at the federal level uh, that can help um, cre- create policies that can ha- actually enhance their their communities well, can I, I think a lot of times i think uh, I think a lot of times uh johnny though with with some of uh what you're saying uh although true i think uh what what Ralph is getting at is that the is the the if I might say the structure of how DC operates and what they do, I think true. The, mm-hmm. the, the lack of representation in, in Congress is, is certainly a, a, uh, pivotal, uh, issue that, that we have so here. Being in this, right. It is. Uh, but in terms of the governance of the city and how the city is run and operated, I think what Ralph is saying is that that's where the, the, uh, structure system is such that uh, it's not operating at a, at a level that it should be given the history of, mm-hmm. of quote unquote black rule in this, in this city. Um, and it's unfortunate because I think that, uh, you know, the DC ha- has a very bad reputation of like, Oh God, you know, I got to deal with this or I have to deal with that um, in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, dealing with the, uh, city agencies and things like that. But mm-hmm. true, what Rob is saying is very true in terms of building buildings as rather than building people, I think it, it is, is on point to a certain extent because quite honestly, uh, development has been rampant in this city for the last, oh God, 10, 15 years, since about 2003, 2004. And uh, it's just build, 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 you know, and basically build and they will come. And that's what's happening. And so the changing of the color, the changing of the guard, the changing of the priorities, a lot of priorities and a lot of things have changed in this city over the last 10 or 15 years that I think is what Ralph is trying to address. Go ahead, Ralph. You were going to say something. 
you know, well, the first thing was the, the whole issue of congressional representation, of course, is a constitutional issue. But here's another question. If representation in Congress is the answer to the question that explains Chicago, Detroit, Baltimore, and every other urban center across America that has congressional representation, that argument about congressional representation, that's a red herring argument. It sounds good, but when you look at other urban areas that are just as blighted that have congressional representation, it's clear that just having voting representation in Congress is not the panacea. Well, I, I mean, I agree with you, Ralph. I'm not suggesting that that is the only problem. I think it's part of the matrix of issues that impact these communities um, from you know, Detroit and uh, Flint, Michigan, to uh, inner city Washington, D.C. Uh, what we're looking at is, is a very deeply um, um, systemic issue that's rooted in the history of these local communities, in, the, in, the, in these major cities going all the way back uh, to Reconstruction. So I think you would agree that these issues have a deep historical uh, perspective that has to be taken into account when looking at these communities. A lot of times these communities are often uh, isolated. You don't see the kind of commercial engagement with with um, uh, multinational corporations sort of infusing capital and commercial activity into these local into these cities um, because of the racism, because of the lack of capital that is generational that comes from, you know, goes from one generation to the next. So um, I, I just think that oftentimes when we look at these issues, like with Detroit or with um, uh, some of the other cities you just named, we do so without a very um, focused look at history and how it plays a deep role in these communities. It takes money okay. and capital, which which is generational, which has generational qualities to them. To build the, the foundations of these communities and what we're seeing in whether it's Detroit or um, South Side Chicago or going all the way back uh, to um, you know some of the um, uh, poor communities in Washington DC is that it's a lack of generational wealth that's been passed down that can sort of generate uh, commercial activity and build the infrastructures in these cities and that, has, think, that uh, of course yeah but but if we want to talk about history, then explain why the black family in 1950 had a 70% rate of mother and father, husband and wife living together. But now in 2018, that rate is 70% single motherhood, and in some communities it's 90%. See, can I, can, so we're trying to say now that, 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 that America now is more racist. And is more detrimental to the black family than America no, was Ralph, in the 1950s. Ralph, 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 I'm gonna tell you, I'm I'm on the same page with you, Ralph, in terms of strengthening the black family. And uh, I wrote a book a few years ago called Multidimensional Ministries for Today's Black Family, because of the need to really find ways to strengthen the black family. Um, but what often goes overlooked is in the late 1960s there were intentional policies from the federal government that attached uh, family separation um, to the uh, access to federal resources. So, for instance, uh, with government, with, uh, and, and, and um, um, I'm sure our, our host is aware of these policies. So in the late 1960s, uh, when these families were put together and, and, um, and strong, doing well, uh, there were federal policies that literally required families to separate in order okay, for mothers let, and their children no, 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 to receive ask, federal okay. their mothers. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. In order for mothers and children to receive federal benefits, uh, the man had to not be in the home. That was actually documented policies that took place and, and existed for nearly 20 years from the late 1962 the mid-1980s, that created uh, uh, the conditions under which the families um, were separated. No, really not much different uh, than the family separation policies we've seen come out of the White House over the last year uh, as it relates to migrant uh, families and, and children. So, so I, Ralph, I think I'm, it's very I'm, important I'm to you... look at these systemic policies that impact the, the black family and how we're still li living into those 
um, conditions today. Uh, Ralph, I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to let you respond very quickly with that because I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm liking the discussion, but I want to keep moving because I certainly want to talk about the black agenda and how we look at this uh, midterm election, the results of this midterm election, and how we understand exactly how it's going to impact and where we can go forward looking at a black agenda. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. If you're not facing your mortgage issues, this can be the most terrifying sound in the world. It means you've fallen behind. It means hope is dwindling. It means you're another call closer to losing your home to foreclosure. Fortunately, there's hope. If you need real help and guidance, call 1-888-995-HOPE. That's 1-888-995-4673. Because nothing is worse than doing nothing. A public service announcement brought to you by NeighborWorks, the Ad Council, and this station. Honey, put this on top of the minivan. We're only going for two weeks. You want me to pack the kitchen sink, too? Well, is there room? Hey, you guys, you going on vacation? Who's that? I don't know. Because we're planning on robbing your house tonight. All right, I'm calling an alarm service. Wouldn't it be great if you could be warned of life's risks? If you have diabetes, you can. There's a simple blood test called A1C that can help measure your risk of complications from diabetes. Why is it important? Because more than 600 people every day die from diabetes and its complications. If your A1C is above 7, your doctor can show you how to lower it. If you have diabetes, know your risk. Know your A1C. Ask your doctor. Or for more information, go to www.diabetesa1c.org or call 1-877-TEST-A1C. Brought to you by the American Diabetes Association, Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation International, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Uh, my guest tonight is Reverend Ralph uh, Chittums. Chittums. Uh, Reverend Ralph Chittums is the principal of Black Elephant LLC and a uh, company uh, focusing on religious and liberty, uh, focusing on issues of religion and liberty on the national and international stages. And then, of course, we have Dr. Johnny B. Hill, who's the associate professor of philosophy and religion at Claflin University. Uh, we lost uh, uh, Judge uh, Angela Graves Harrington out of Houston, one of the uh, judges recently elected uh, in uh, Harris County, uh, Houston, Texas, or Harris County, Texas, which encompasses Houston. And uh, we're hoping to try to get her back on the line here shortly. But uh, go ahead, Ralph. You wanted to respond to uh, uh, Dr. Hill's uh last comments. And then uh, I, have a, I have a couple of questions that we want to move forward on and talk about, you know, how this election is going to impact or should impact uh, the agenda uh, for African-Americans and, and where it stands, given the, the turnout of African-Americans across the country. Uh, um, the comment was, was made linking the policies in, of the 1960s, um, which decimated black America to the Republican policies of the present administration. Okay, if you want to make that, that leap, that's fine. But let's understand then that those policies that you're now linking to a Republican administration in 2018 were thrust upon America by Democrats. Democrat Party is the party that put those regulations and rules in place that decimated the black family. And in what has happened to be a prophetic document, Daniel Patrick Moynihan predicted exactly what was going to happen to the black community if those Democrat policies were enacted as written. So, so there is no innocent political party here. There is no, mm-hmm. this party is good and this party is bad. And I think for too many people in the black community, they want to give the Democrat Party a pass for their um, damaging racist demagoguery for their history 
and want to blame everything on white Republicans, which is a complete whitewashing of history. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. let me ask you this question, and let's and let's and let's take it from here because I'm more concerned about what's happening to us in our agenda moving forward collectively because collectively and uh, quite honestly, just, just the, the reality of things is that the systemic issues that we have to deal with as African-Americans still exist, although um, many have, you know, been able to get around, get over, you know, break through those issues. They still exist. And my thing from a standpoint of, of trying to bring and enlighten and try to get you, the two of you folks on the show to talk about different things is that even in Washington, D.C., we're still in the South. So let's not look at this as being like we on the East Coast somewhere. This ain't New York. This is not New Jersey. This is the South. We are okay. below the Mason Dixon line. <laughs> okay, so let's be real about that and let's realize and take that into uh, uh, consideration and, and realization of how we're dealing with things and how things still, even though we're in a quote unquote democratic city, still affect us. Because even in a New York or a New Jersey or, you know, even a California, there's still those issues that you have to deal with as African Americans, regardless. So, uh, you know, the, the only difference stops you is that if you're an athlete, and you making tens of millions of dollars, they'll look at you, but you're still subject to it. It just depends on how good you look that day. Um, you know, and Michael and OJ found that out the hard way. So, you know, let's mm-hmm. look at it from the standpoint of, of, of creating and fostering an agenda for African-Americans that deal with, which is one of the things I was wanted to talk to uh, Judge Harrington about, because especially at a, a, a justice or judicial level, when we look at the idea of so many uh, black men incarcerated, but now in certain states they're getting their rights back to vote, um, you have to deal with the issue of them coming out of prison and then trying to reintegrate themselves in society and into the workforce, but them having to deal with the issues that unfortunately, in some cases, not in all, uh, white America does not have to deal with because white America has someone that will be there to, you know, give them a job here, give them a job there. Mm-hmm. And black America mm-hmm. has those opportunities. I just don't see them as, as, as uh, prominent or, or as, as many as on the other side. Um, how do we deal with that kind of situation where we're trying to get those economic issues and those economic structures to accept, um, you know, low education or lack of education um, black men to be able to work into this structure in this society, Ralph, how do we, what are the things that you see and maybe some of the things that you saw or you were going to look at in your platform on a local level that we can look at on a national level to deal with and creating a black agenda for, for uh, you know, for our families and and being able to have legacies. Mm -hmm. What made, what built America, what made America great is entrepreneurship. It's the individual owning his or her own business. 25 years ago, urban America was sold the biggest lie, well, one of the biggest lies ever told, that everyone is supposed to go to college. And what we did structurally was remove the next two generations of up-and-coming entrepreneurs from our communities. Now, you, no, you will never get rich working for someone else. That's just an economic fact. And the fact that we have systemically Well, now, wait a minute now. Wait a minute. Now, you can get rich working for somebody if you're on Wall Street, if you're an investment well, bank, if you can do that. We're talking statistically. I got you. I got you. I just wanted to throw that in there. I don't want my listeners to think that they cannot go and work their way up. You're right. I made, I made an absolute statement, and absolute statements are always false. Because there's always an outline. Okay, I, I will concede that point. I will concede that point. But statistically, right, you have to have your own businesses. And what we have done inside the black community is we have removed the opportunity for entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is what generates wealth. 
people who have small businesses hire from their communities. Statistically, they hire people who look like them, who come from the same communities as them. And one of the things that we really need to do is we need to get back to building an entrepreneurial base inside of black America. I, uh, I, I actually very uh, much so agree with Ralph on this, on this uh, observation. Um, yeah, I do You too. know, as someone who's been working in uh, higher education for nearly 20 years, um, what, what, what I'm seeing is a, is a crisis where we're graduating students with tons of student loan debt, um, basically um, um, giving them a lifetime of, uh, of, in, of indentured servitude to pay off uh, this massive debt of student loan debt that they have no way of paying back. And at the same time, um, at the same time, there are very few jobs that are, that are available uh, that, that will allow these young people to compete. Uh, and so I agree. I think that what we have to do is to start creating more opportunities for uh, job and skill training and, and, and helping um, individuals learn how to start a business uh, how to form an LLC or a nonprofit or not-for-profit organization uh, and develop skills and tools that they can use to build a life for themselves. Um, but I, I totally agree with that. I, I think we have to do that. But we also need leaders, too. And, I, I mean, I, and this is where I would say that it's not an either-or, but both and, because we also need very ex- experienced and well-trained individuals who can provide leadership uh, in the global economy. It's not just enough to start a small business. We also need thought leaders and intellectuals who can help provide leadership at, at all levels of society uh, to continue to be thought leaders as well um, in, in a number of different areas, to be leaders in technology, in business, in economics, in government, in uh, medicine, in ethics, uh, and in, um, in, in, in higher education. Exactly. The, uh, uh, I agree. I agree with that as well. Right, but to paraphrase Booker T. Washington, because I'm horrible at remembering quotes exactly, he said something along the lines of attaining political power without having your own economic base to support it is foolish. And that's exactly what black America has attained a certain level of political clout. You know, we had Barack Obama in the White House, and we have senators, and we have congressmen, and we have people elected to the state houses, but we don't have the economic base within the black community to support those politicians, and that's where we have missed the mark. I agree with that, and I also think that uh, that it also comes down to a point of educating and understanding just what uh, business acumen is and how to move forward with it. Because what unfortunately you have, um, and you know, you, you, you see it in our community, although it happens in all communities, I just think that there's enough cover in other communities that it's not as prominent or, I'm not necessarily in all those other communities to know all the ins and outs, which is very mm-hmm. true. But what you have for us is that we have the capacity, the ability, and the understanding of what our product is, how to do our product, and everything else. But unfortunately, we don't necessarily always have the capital or the ability to service, especially if we're in the service industry, to service that. So there's always that backlash of, well, you didn't give me or you didn't get. But yet, we as consumers don't mind going to someone else and getting that same service. And if they don't do what we feel they should do, we'll still go back to them. But we won't go back to our own, to support our own, to make our own better at it and being able to help them grow and get it better. And I think some of what you're saying, Ralph, and some of what you've said, Johnny, in terms of how our infrastructure in our community have been, um, you know, with parents, without parents, and, and lack of leadership in our community is, is one of those vital keys that has caused yeah. us to want to be able to have the entrepreneurship and be able to do it, but then credit, capital, 
understanding those things and then how to deal with payroll taxes, how to deal with, you know, uh, uh, income taxes and paying taxes and being able to put money aside to buy inventory and to do different things and get the same results as our white counterparts or our Asian counterparts. You know, they have absolutely, absolutely the same number of amount of businesses that we have. I mean, we have more small businesses than they do, but yet our capital in our small businesses is less than the Asians, and they have a million less small businesses than we do. Mm. Well, can I add to that? Oh, oh sorry. Go ahead. So go ahead, Ralph. Okay, yeah. go ahead, Johnny. Well, okay, well, the the point that I wanted to make was that uh, related to what you're saying, one of the issues we're having is the crisis of the the actual institutions that have served the role of actually doing exactly what you're referring to. So many HBCUs across the country are in crisis. Right now, right because mm-hmm. their uh, their they, their graduation rates, uh, student retention rates, all of these things are totally uh, horrible in many HBCUs across the country, and so the very institutions from the black church to historically black colleges and universities are in crisis. So if the institutions that have been put in place, and uh, Ralph mentioned Tuskegee as an example. Uh, these institutions that have been put in place to actually help to fuel, propel the, the, the community forward or in crisis, where then do we look further that agenda? So beyond just simply trying to inspire people and encourage folks and individuals to do, to do these things, how do we build institutions and structures that are actually going to help uh, mobilize, organize, and, and, and advance these larger, uh, the larger agenda? And that, that's mm-hmm. really my concern at this point is, like, when we, have organ, we, when we have those historic organizations like the black church, like historically black colleges and universities that are in crisis, how do we now where – where, where do we turn to actually accomplish and advance uh, these larger uh, agendas? Okay, so here is where, where I'm going to get in trouble with all of your listeners tonight, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Um, HBCUs have completely lost sight of their mission. If I could snap my fingers and change something about the HBCUs, I would have every HBCU cancel every African-American studies department and transfer all those students into the school of business. When you come out of an HBCU <laughs> yeah, yeah, you really with a Bachelor of yeah. Arts in black literature or black studies or something else, the only job you are going to get is as a barista at Starbucks. For that, you're going to have $80,000 worth of debt. Those I don't think my listeners are going to be mad at you for that. <laughs> yeah, so, 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 and, and look, I graduated from Howard, so I, I, I'm talking about, you know, I'm talking about the Mecca. I'm including Howard in this foolishness of having students pursue these useless undergraduate degrees that saddle them with debt and then make them feel good psychologically, but prepare them absolutely none for the real world and to become economic engines in their own community. I think that I think Ralph has a very narrow understanding of what education is about because um, <laughs> as, Will Durant, as Will Durant once said, um, education uh, and like philosophy may not make you rich, but it will set you free. So you have a lot of educated, you have a lot of educated, rich, uh, slaves that are out there uh, in the world, and money alone is not necessarily the object of fulfillment and and flourishing. So I think that we have to sort of but, challenge this notion but, that but, money but alone the reality is of it, what's going to the reality of it is this, Johnny. What's going to liberate us? It. It's not going. Yeah, I mean, but, and, reality, and, but actually, you know, the Johnny, thing is, Johnny, 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 <laughs> yeah, Johnny. The reality is this. Yes, okay, what Ralph is saying is this. 
because I, I agree with him to, to, to uh, the, the, the degree of, of this. If you're at an HBCU, you don't need to have a degree program from African-American studies. It should already be taught as a regular part of the history and what's going on. So I yeah. will agree in that sense because, yes, it may not be the money of fulfillment, but unfortunately for our community, it is the money that needs to be fulfilled for us to be able to survive in this global economy. We're not able What's to do investment? what we need to do. We're not able to do what we need to do in our own communities. That's why gentrification pisses me off. I don't need somebody else moving into my community to tell me my community is good enough or better enough so we can have higher prices for our houses or we can have uh, 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 industry or, or corporations come into my community. I don't believe in that. I believe in the Black Wall Street phenomenon. I believe in my grandfather, you know, working at the railroads and and doing things middle class and being able to have something. I believe in that middle class structure that I grew up in. I understand that both my parents were working and they had good jobs and, you know, we can go to school and go to college and do those things. But at the same time, I also agree with the fact that, okay, because we went to school, I don't necessarily believe that it took us back because that was the one thing that we could hold on to that was instilled in us that they can never take from us. But we should have taken it and developed mm-hmm. entrepreneurial spirits out of it rather than, as you were saying, slave mentality spirits of going to work for somebody and staying there. Now, on the flip side, mm-hmm. I believe that we could have gone and it, like my, my uncle, my uncle, you know, went to school came out of school, went to go work for uh, IBM or went to go work for Simon & Schuster and everything else. Then he ended up being the VP of Amico Oil and, uh, and uh, Principal Financial. So he became very wealthy doing that. Uh, but he also had an entrepreneurial spirit in that because he understood what he knew was something that he could also parlay into anything he wanted to do. And I think that is the sentiment that we need to take forward and push because if you're just going to go to school, to come out with debt to just go get a job, you're going to school for the wrong reason. However, of if you're course. going to school to get the education so that, one, you can have sus- substance in who you are as a person, and it can shape your character, and it can shape your ideology of where and what you want to do. If you want to go into service industry, if you want to go into business, or if you want to go into politics or wherever it is where you can help people or health care, or you want to go into the, you know, come out and decide that you want to start your own business or work with someone, then you do that, but you do it with an entrepreneurial spirit. I know when I worked at the White House and I worked in right. federal, I used to tell the people, look, learn everything you can in here, but do it as an entrepreneur. Don't do it as an employee because you want to take everything oh, yeah. you have. If by chance you end up having to leave here, come back and make these suckers pay you for your expertise and understanding what you just got finished doing. But don't sit there and just oh, do it so that get laid off are fired, now you're sitting in an unemployment line because the particular job you have, there's no other jobs available to you, but you haven't prepared yourself right. for the entrepreneurial side. Right. So I agree with right, Ross right. Absolutely. That because it's, it's one of those things. Real quick, I, yeah, I want to take but, a break, but, but I can't take a yeah. break because I only got about 10 minutes left. I want to talk about these elections and, and the dynamics of what's happened. Um, and, and Ralph, since you know, you're the, the, the GOP on the, on the line, what is it and where is it uh, what's going to happen now in terms of this Trump agenda and, and, and where it's going? And I mean, there, there's so much to talk about, but it, I only got a few minutes to go with it. So just give me a, a, a buzz line that we can follow up with on what's what's you know, what's the GOP's uh, uh, outlook now? And, and quite frankly, let me ask it to you this way. What's the GOP's agenda for African-Americans? What are you looking for or what are they looking for? Or what have you heard they're looking to do in terms of reaching African-Americans? Because quite frankly, they are not looking to do so. And all the policies, in my opinion, that they put in place have done nothing but disenfranchise and really push them away even further. So what do you think or where do you see it going in the future? Well, um, the National Republican Party, um, does say that they want to reach out to, you know, to the black community, but they are doing a piss poor job at it. Um, to put it bluntly, um, they have the wrong people. To, they have the wrong people running it. 
They mm-hmm. have no idea. Please let me come exactly. in. On, please let me come in on this. Oh, right here. Johnny, Johnny, hush. Go ahead, Ralph. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, they have no they please. Have no clue of what it is they should be doing. They're putting the right. money in all the wrong places. Um, right. The black community historically has been a very conservative so. community, but mm-hmm. the, but the, the leadership of the party has not listened to the right people, i.e. me, um, regarding how to go about messaging and reaching my community. They have not done well, a good job I, at I, all. I don't know. I don't know that she's going to do that because she's you know lock and stock with 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 uh, your president. And not necessarily lock in stock with her uncle, um, and so I don't, I don't know. Or is it, it that's her uncle? I think right, or her daughter, his daughter. I can't remember uh, who she is. But let's let's be right. clear: the the Republican Party has become, if it perhaps, um, although it may have always been, um, a party of white supremacy and white nationalism. That is always? indisputable. Always? It may have been always, even going all the way back to Lincoln. I mean, I I, I, I want to say that, the that there have not been some good things that have been. The Republican Party is the party that got the civil rights legislation that Johnson led. Okay, well, well, well in that case, let's just look at you the party over the last. History, and that is okay. not. Okay, let's be clear. I don't want to – I'm not trying to get into a historical debate with you about whether or not. Um, All right, but but wait a minute, but know, wait a minute, Johnny. Wait a minute, Johnny. Because you said, right you now, said, Johnny, but Johnny, you said historically, right. and it's undisputable. So now I'm going to agree with Ralph on that because, you know, although I think you know, and, I don't have and, enough and, time and right though, now, Doc. I mean, you know, though, like, I, I don't I mean, either. I don't either. I only got about five minutes. But even know, though some right. of it may have been platitudes to it, but it, it was done. Things were done, and they did put things in place. And quite frankly. I did agree with a lot of uh, uh, Jack Kemp's proposals and the way Jack Kemp addressed the mm-hmm. issues. In fact, I didn't even know he was a Republican when he came to California uh, talking about what he's talking. And I was like, okay, I like this dude. I like what he's talking about and, and where his structure were. Some Republicans I can deal with a whole lot. I can't. But my point and purpose is always focusing on what are we doing for our people and how we move forward. And and I will even say to, to Ralph's uh, defense, not that he needs it, but Democrats do the same thing. They don't always put their money where they need to for African-Americans, and they're always a day late dollar short mm-hmm. when it comes to campaigning and doing what they need to do, which pisses me off all the time because I, they don't listen yeah. to me either when I tell them or say, look, people – Here's what you, if you want to keep us, this is what you have to do. That's why so many black folks sat out in 2016 and they suffered mm-hmm. the consequences, although we're suffering the consequences as African-Americans as well, because now we got all these judges and these courts and on these benches that are certainly not going to be looking I to refuse, us. Doc, as, I refuse, Doc. I refuse to make that, a functional that, equivalency between the Democratic Party. And the I'm not talking. Party. I'm, I'm the not, I'm not of, so much God, talking about a functional equivalency. Obama. I'm talking there about no functional equivalent between. But it's not Barack's party, Come on, and that's man. the problem. Uh, absolutely not. Absolutely, it's not, not Barack's party, um, though. This, see, I mean, and that's that, the that, 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 that might Had be true, been. but but when you okay, but you don't but see, see Stacey Abrams or Gilliam running on a Republican platform. No, you don't see these major voices across the country. But, from but Johnny, Latino, they're not Latino, running the on most, John, Johnny. Johnny, they're <laughs> not running on Barack's platform either. They're running on Bernie Sanders' platform. They're running that on may the be true, but even platform. Bernie Sanders' platform so, is is a is a lot better than that. May be true. On his worst day. That may be true. Party. But at the same time, cultural, it's not necessarily better than capitalism. That's brilliant. <laughs> But but that so may be think, true. But the, oh, but the problem you, you is think this. separating children down at the border is uh, is is is, Johnny, um, Johnny, is, Johnny, is a good thing. Right. Uh, let's, where, let's, where let's, you let's look at it. Let's look at the Let's do well, it. Well, I don't way. think let's that Barack is doing it at the level and the, and the extent. Let's do it this way. No, 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 no. Let's do it this way. Righteous indignation when your black president was doing the exact same thing. You and the rest of Black America was quiet. Because you dare not criticize your black Jesus, and you know that's not true. <laughs> oh, 
Ralph. You but that's not true. Ralph, that was enough criticism to go around. And if, and if Donald Trump does the exact same thing that Barack Obama did six yeah. years later, now you Negroes all of a sudden have a problem with it. There is oh, no you mean, no, you mean like you mean with, with Trump was saying grab, grab him by the you know what? Is so that here's what you're the, referring here's to? The so here's the deal. So Barack was enforcing the same laws that Trump is supposed to be enforcing as well. The only difference, Ralph, and it's is a stark difference is that he didn't separate them in the same manner that Trump did, nor is he putting troops down at the border to tell them and to intimidate them to go on back. They had asylum rights. They could come in and go for asylum and go through the system. Trump, on the other hand, is saying you know, so many different things, although he is not necessarily uh, – uh, there's, so there's only so much he can actually implement, but that that he can implement, he is doing. So there is a difference. But at the same time, both were sending people and deported. In fact, under Barack Obama, a whole lot of folks were deported, right? And that's the whole – and that's the point. But that was the whole point is that he was – Deporter in chief. Chief, that's right. And so he was deporting a lot of folks who were not here. It was deportation. It was not a family separation policy. It was not a family separation policy. It wasn't a family separation policy. He was deporting them. That came here illegally. He was deporting them. Who came in? Who committed crimes? He was deporting them, and that's why the the equivalent of what Trump is doing is so vastly greater than what uh, what they're saying that Brock did. But in in the next two two sentences, Ralph, what's at stake for us as African Americans as a community, as a race, not as Democrats or Republicans, but what's at stake for us socially, economically, politically? that we have to be focused on to make sure that we can create a black agenda that works for us, regardless of who's in office. Um, honestly, our very survival as a race is in jeopardy right now. Period. End of discussion. Um, and, and, and I say that simply because of the fact that abortion has become a genocide inside of the black community. We need to embrace our community. We need to love ourselves. We need to build ourselves up. We need to build up our entrepreneurial side. We need to educate ourselves. We need, we need to just holistically heal as a people. Now, that's easy to say, but that's going to be very hard to do. All right, Johnny, real quick, what's at stake for us? 30 seconds. I, I, I agree with Ralph. I think what's at stake is, is our survival as, as a people. Uh, what's at stake is our, our, um, our legacy for this present age and what we're going to leave to our children. And I think the legacy we should leave to them is a legacy of resistance and struggle and utter determination to make a difference for this present age, to challenge white supremacy and white nationalism, uh, to fight it with every uh, breath in our bodies uh, so that our future generations might know who they are uh, as African descended people made in the image of God with power and purpose to create a better world. I want to thank both of you gentlemen for coming on the show and, and even uh, uh, having your own little talk show in the middle of uh, my hosting and going <laughs> off to each other. One another. I certainly think yeah. my listeners found it quite enjoyable. <laughs> but, but, the, but the real deal in this next uh, 90 seconds that I have is that we have to recognize as a people, as a, as a, as a race, even as a culture of who we are, because, um, our culture dictates and determines a lot of how we do things and why we do the things that we do the way we do them. But at the same time, I think that in, in Ralph's case of educating and recognizing entrepreneurship and recognizing what's, what's at stake and how we do things, it's very clear and very vital to understanding exactly where we're going to be next year, five years, and 10 years from now. And unfortunately, if we do not recognize that as a community, holistically as a community and being able to make sure that our families, that our children, that our grandchildren recognize and understand their value as a people, as African-Americans and their contributions to this country and this nation is going to be vitally uh, depressing of what we will ultimately find ourselves and where we will find ourselves. So with that, I want to thank you guys for joining us. Until next time. If it's social, economic, or political, it's Black Politics Today. I want to thank my guests again for joining us tonight, and I look forward to having you both on the show again 
real soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Black Politics Today on I for What's at Stake in Global Politics with your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Join us live each Monday from 7 to 8 p.m. Until next time, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and download us on iTunes at Black Politics Today.